0: Nick
1: Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf Fan Club on Foo Bar Radio. Hi, we off! Ah, we're doing it. And just, 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 just like, on cue, as soon as we begin, there's Nathaniel with Mug, mug in hand, taking a drink. Actually, on, when the shit hits the fan, he's in, incapacitated himself with a hot drink. I'm, I'm um, free wheeling. I'm um.
0: I'm like um. Uh, I'm like Chris Moyle's or one of them people, Freewheeling I, radio
1: person. If only you were, if only you were Helman Moylezy. Hey, imagine. <laughs> um, sure. I d- actually don't. Doesn't matter. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're listening to Fan Club, um uh this is what well, what day is it it's friday the 20th is it will
0: it be it'll be about then won't
1: it um, about then it'll be this 19th 19th friday the 19th unlucky for some um that's what they say isn't it remember remember friday the 19th of february uh, what's your name My name's nick helm <laughs> what's your name
0: Nathaniel
1: Metcalf, pleased to meet you. Uh, and um, uh, and the catchphrase across the nation uh, that everyone shouts out as soon as they hear and it's Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf, and the nation in respond go who? Oh? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's uh, that's the little thing. It's like nice. It's very much uh, nice to see you to see you. Nice, isn't it? It's... It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the first rule of fan club, Nick. Tell your friends about fan club. I think I think if you've got any, um, if you've got any, then why keep it to
0: yourself?
1: Um, why not? Why 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 keep it to yourself? But also, Oh, that's my microphone. If you've got any friends, um, why waste your time? Listening to a radio show or podcast, why not do a Zoom call with them? I suppose you can do that, yeah. You can. That's, that's about all you can do in these. Not long now. Hey, do you think that? What, what do you think? Another?
0: I don't know. I don't like to think. I'm trying not to get ahead of myself.
1: I think another two weeks, and then I'll be out there shaking hands with everyone. Uh... <laughs> 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 remember last year, this time last year. I'm really not worried about.
0: <laughs> I remember out there shaking hands with everybody, and uh... there was that couple, wasn't there, who were on like a cruise or something, and there was this big reveal at one point that they had Corona, and it was a big shock. And then you realise, oh, everyone's going to get it. That's, that's not... It's uh, They were the first people in the UK to get it. And then, at the time, it felt like such a big deal. And now, everyone's at it now, aren't they? Well, they haven't had it. That's the problem.
1: <sighs> um, yeah, but... Yeah, so... We, well, so, I'm just thinking, that not this time a year ago. When was it? 6th of March. 6th of March last year, I went to see Supergrass. Um... At Alexandra Palace, about this time last year, I went to see Romesh Ranganathan at Alexandra Palace. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. He very kindly uh, he asked me to come and see him because um, he was cooking up a new show, and he won- <laughs> He re- he respected my feedback enough. He said, "Can you come and see my new show?" And I said, "Oh yeah, sure, sure thing, Rom." Anything for you. And he uh, gave me one ticket. <laughs> 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 so I had
0: to sit and watch him by myself. You respected it was... your opinion, but not your ability to have any friends.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, well, who am I going to tell, Ron? <laughs> um, little did I know it was a taste of things to come. Um, a, a, a whole year... Of solitude (laughs) Um, but like yeah and so I did that like probably late February and then I think a week later I went to see Supergrass at the same place where all these strangers were coming up to me and hugging me and breathing on me people were just like when I went to see Romesh despite the fact that I was in a sitcom with him (laughs) no one recognised me I was left very much to myself Um, (laughs) um, and, um, (laughs) uh, I I got there, it's kind of like a good news, bad news thing, kind of, you know, you go, oh good, no one's recognised me, and then you go, but Why? (laughs) 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 And then it was like, there's absolutely no one watching this sitcom that we've done. This was, like, my... This was my chance at the mainstream, uh, being in a Ramesh Nathan sitcom.
0: Surely this is where the people that are fans of the show will be.
1: Yeah. This is where I find them. (laughs) No, and I spent... So so I was on my own. Uh, I got a drink. Watched the first half in the interval. I queued up. I got myself another drink. Like nothing, no one, you know. You milling <laughs> around for half an hour, waiting for the show to start back up, and then I sit in my seat, uh, and I'm surrounded by. This isn't a comment on Rom, but I'm surrounded by empty seats. <laughs> 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 just like going, well, I could have bought someone like, easily. It wouldn't yeah, have. Yeah. And um, I, I, well, I had a seat enough for me to put a bag next to me, you know, and then um, uh. And just as the lights are going down, these, uh, f- there's like four kids in front of me. And one of them turns around and he looks at me and then he nudges his friends and they all point at me and they go, Lemon! Because <laughs> that was my character in Rom Show. They go, Lemon! And I just say... Not now, <laughs> <laughs> and then the lights went down, and then Ramesh came out, and um, and that was that. And then I went to Supergrass the next week, and it turns out that Ramesh's audience and the Supergrass uh audience, um, I think the un- people that watch Uncle <laughs> are all very much um, ex Brit pop fans,
0: right? Yeah, it makes sense.
1: Um, Makes sense. And uh, fucking hell, um, my friend Rebecca, who is um, a cook, um, she said it was like being in a zoo enclosure. Like everyone was just sort of like staring. It was horrible. It was literally horrible. And, um, yeah, people were coming up to me and grabbing me and kissing me and um, getting their photo taken with me. And it was like but it was like I was with people and I was just being dragged around at one point I went to the bar after the gig and the whole side of the bar were all sort of like staring and pointing at me and they are all on their phones because what happens is people start googling you because no one exactly knows who you are so (laughs) they google you and they go it's that guy and then they're like oh it's that guy and then they will start pointing you
0: google man from uncle and get lots of pictures of Robert Vaughan on there and go it's not him
1: that's not Henry Cavill, either. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, so, and then that night I got home and I got really ill. And then um, uh, I think I was ill for two weeks.
0: Yeah, yeah. We I, I forget how quickly we started doing these Zoom ones. Because we were doing it a few weeks. I remember my birthday is at the end of April, April 29th. And on my birthday last year, we did the Bob Saget episode, which was a few into the... Um, a few of the railway. So, a year of zooms.
1: So, Friday the sixth was the day I got ill. I was ill for exactly two weeks, and then I think it was Friday the twentieth that we went into the first lockdown. Yeah. So, just as I felt well again, that's when we went to lockdown. So, when's your birthday?
0: April 29th. Apparently, the first uh, the first lockdown episode was tenth of April. Yeah, and that would so be we've been keeping the nation entertained for almost a year over Zoom. So that would be with Bill Al,
1: right?
0: Yeah, probably was that one, right? I think. And since
1: it. then, not saying that we're responsible, but since then, Bill Al has absolutely fucking exploded. I met Bill Al. Um, I met I'd I, I met him a couple of times, I think, but not like to any any profound degree. I met him at the Leicester Comedy Festival, which was this weekend, wasn't it? So normally over Valentine's yeah. weekend. Um, I remember because in 2010 I did He Makes You Look Fat for the very first time at, on Valentine's Day and I made a woman cry. <laughs> there were nine people in the audience and one of them was crying. They were like, oh, no, that's more than 10%. <laughs> this, this isn't good. Um, so I thought I'd never sing it again. So Valentine's Day, that's the, fe- the festival goes over, like, mid-February. Uh, so I met Bill Al like, then, and then... Um, we got on really well, so I put him onto the show, um, and he's done amazing. Uh, he's one of the few people that's really profited profited from uh, Corona.
0: Yeah, him and Amazon. Uh, him and Jeff Bezos are the two kind of uh, people who, who've done well out of Amazon. Really, really made,
1: it, really made it. Really made Corona uh, <laughs> swing in their favour. So good. Good for them. Bad for us. Exactly. Good for them. Okay, yeah. uh, so th- like, so and now a year on, and, uh, and here we are. Um, so thanks, everyone, for listening, I guess. Um, we've had some ups and downs. Uh, this isn't a retrospective one. What have you, um, <laughs> what, what have you been watching this week, Nathaniel? A film that I was going to talk about, uh, I was going to talk about the film
0: Brain Dead, not the Peter Jackson Brain Dead. Um, it's like a Roger Corman-produced Brain Dead, with the two bills paxton and pullman
1: from 1990 have you seen this paxton and pullman um bill paxton and bill pullman oh right okay uh no i haven't um there are there's the two bills and then there's the unofficial third bill Campbell. Uh, william sadler William Sadler, right, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, um, uh, that's who I was thinking, because he did Trespass with Paxton, didn't he? There's William Sadler, Bill Paxton, Ice-T and Ice-Q, both the Bills, both the Ices, Trespass. It's a roller coaster. Oh, it's a
0: great movie, Trespass. Um, yeah. brain, yes. dead. brain Dead's pretty good. A brain
1: Dead? So, um, so who directed Brain Dead? I can't remember the name. I think he's called Adam...
0: Is he called Adam Shires or Adam... Um, he did a lot of documentary stuff. He did the Carnosaur stuff for Corman, but he's obviously, like, he's, he's very much in the Joe Dante mode. He's very kind of influenced by lots of old sort of B movies and 60s movies, um, and that, the film itself is very, uh, very much like that. It feels like a Joe Dante movie or something. Mm. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's people doing brain experiments and Bill Pullman ending up kind of on a journey inside his own brain in kind of it's it's filmed in this quite wacky, over the top, turned up, bright coloured way. But almost because it's this sort of weird, sort of paranoid film as well with Bill Pullman, the film it kept reminding me of is Lost Highway. Adam Simon is the director. Yeah. So it's got, and it's just nice that in my head it's quite nice to go, oh, it's Paxman and Pullman, and that felt like a bit of a draw.
1: Oh, right, that's the one with the face stretched over the... Yeah, yeah, it's that. Right, OK. I think I remember... See, there are these, um, there are these films that were in video shop covers, uh, exactly. video shop windows, and they gave me nightmares, and I think maybe Braindead was one of those films. I think Nightbreed was maybe another. Hmm. Um, it,
0: it feels like the most horrific kind of horror on the cover... And, yeah, it's basically a comedy. You know, it's, um, it's also Bud Court from um, Harold and Maud.
1: Harold and Maud, yeah. And it's got wasn't, a- he, wasn't Bud Court also in um, the Bates, the original Bates Motel uh, Psycho spin-off TV series? Uh, he might well have been, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, I think he owned the Bates Motel, and it was kind of like there's a new adventure every week. Um, Sorry, that was just an absolute... <laughs> oh, I think that's, like, nerdy. That's nerdy top trumps, isn't it? That's literally... Yeah,
0: no, I like... No, I like that. I, it impressed me.
1: But who... But what else was Bud Court in? Bud Court was in something where... He's in... More recently, he's in, um... The, uh,
0: Life Aquatic with Steve Zisu.
1: Not that. He's in something where... Where he just looks because I mean, he uh, you remember him from um,
0: Harold and Moore as his child,
1: yeah. And then the majority of other things you see him in, he's like this bald kind of uh, he's not it's not coyote ugly. Um, oh well, I guess we'll never know. Natalie,
0: <laughs> dogma.
1: dogma, no, it's not dogma. Maybe we just have a list of everything rather than. <laughs> Why don't you just co- copy and paste an entire list of everything that he'd done <laughs> rather than one at a time trying to guess? It's, um, never know. Never. Lot it, I think maybe
0: he as well. Apparently a lot of the cast in it are people from Tim Robbins's theatre group. Hmm. So it's got a lot of those guys popping up. It's got the guy from Tenacious D who's not Jack Black and things popping up for just playing fairy kind of um, character parts in it. But it's a kinda of, it's a real like fun movie for something that's very throwaway kind of Roger Corman film as well. Yeah, but it kind yeah. of it sort of does it does both things. It's sort of better than that and also is exactly that thing.
1: I think Roger Corman made quite a lot of really good films. And aside, from, aside from like um, the classy ones that he did with Vincent Price, mm. I think after that, um I think they're really good. What's that what's that one that I watched? The one about the sea monster from beneath the That one. <laughs> it was it was great. Um I th- I think I watched that about a year ago today. Secret Diary of Sigmund Freud, no. Telephone, no, Bates Motel, there you go. take Out of the Dark, Going Under. Okay. Creature from the Haunted Sea. It wasn't that. It wasn't that at all. So
0: it's also it's a good it's a good way of knowing that in a, in if you're working in Hollywood there are all these tons of character actors who've been in loads of films. So why don't you kind of make your supporting cast just those character actors? So everyone's popping up, and you're like, oh yeah, it's him, it's him." It's a, it, and it makes for a richer kind of film, I think. To
1: us, what film is this again that you're talking about? Brain Dead brain dead that is on the list of uh, film where did you see it
0: I got it on Blu-ray I was sort of reading a thing about it and it come out I think it just came out just before Christmas and I got it in a kind of oh yeah that yeah no that intrigues me actually I haven't seen that in the UK yeah in the UK and uh, the director Adam Simon had done this um, he made a documentary about Sam Fuller that I remember from when I when I was a teenager that was on channel 4 And he made that then, and then um, I was also just watching a lot of Sam Fuller films as well over Christmas, and that made me uh, kind of intrigued about his other films. So who's
1: Sam Fuller?
0: He kind of made lots of, kind of B movies, but for studios, kind of quite cheap, but very very kind of hard-bitten kind of crime movies often, that kind of sort of pushed the envelope a bit. But he's, like, he's a, he's one of those directors who... You'll know him if you saw him. He's kind of like this old guy always has, like, a big cigar, makes kind of quite hard-bitten films. Um, which I think was most... He did, like, in the later years, he did The Big Red One. Um... Is that with Mark Hamill? Mark Hamill. Um... He did, um, Underworld USA, uh... He did, um, uh, what's it called? The uh, Shock Corridor. He's done a bunch of stuff, done a bunch of stuff. But often they're not, they're not obvious kind of films, but they, when I was, after watching that documentary, I noticed that on Channel 4 at the time, lots of, lots of his films used to be on all of the time. Um, so you'd kind of, you could watch, they were always on in the afternoons and things, these old movies. Pick Up in South Street, 40 Guns. And they're they're always like either kind of, he basically went from being a newspaper man to being a, uh, in the Second World War, and then he started making movies. So all his films tend to be like war films or based on, like, crime, almost like very, like, pulpy crime stuff, tabloidy crime stories you'd get from, like, American newspapers. He's like a newspaper man.
1: Brad Fuller. Sam Fuller. Sam Fuller. Okay. Well, I'll give it all a go. I'll give everything a go.
0: Hello. Hello. What have Um, you been a fan of this week, Nick?
1: Um... Well, speaking of the Joe Dante stuff, um, I mean, I, so Christopher Plummer died. Yes. And I can't really... It's so weird. Um, like, I haven't seen a lot of Christopher Plummer films, I have to admit. Um, but I think he's had a real impact in my life. I, I do absolutely remember so clearly that Sound of Music was one of the first three films that I saw at a cinema. Um, And it's such a... And I've got a niece, and they've been... um, And I've seen my niece about twice in her entire life. Um, And my parents were showing her little bits from Sound of Music.
0: Mm. You should probably Um, say that your niece is actually very young, and that's why you've only seen
1: uh, that. Oh, yeah, she was... Well, she's just over one years old. Um, and uh, I got to see her just before lockdown. And then I've seen her in real life maybe three or four times. But that's it, really. Um, I've seen her on online, but uh, she just cries every time. <laughs> so I'm waiting for her to get to about three. And, uh, when she doesn't cry all the time. But, um, but I'm sure as soon as, oh, you know, as soon as you're allowed to see people in real life, I'll just, I'll, I'll see her as much as I can. But um, my parents um, lived down the road from her, uh, and they showed her, like, the puppet show from Sound of Music and stuff like that. And, like, she was absolutely transfixed by it. And... Um, I don't know how much I don't know how much TV my sister lets. her watch. I've got a feeling it's not that much, so uh, maybe it's just a moving image that's kind of like captivating. But um, you know, Santa music is famous for being this very light, almost twee. The the, the reputation it has is this twee film about singing nuns and. Uh, teaching kids how to sing, uh, how to sing. Um, but it's this, uh, it's, it's an amazing film about, um, music opening your heart. <laughs> and, uh, it's such a complicated film in terms of like emotion, like the emotions it deals with, you know, um, when you realize that, um, Uh, the girl's boyfriend, who she's in love with, is basically a Nazi, you know. You're kind of, as a kid, you you kind of, you find all of these conflicting emotions that you can't quite understand. You feel betrayed, you feel sad, you feel disappointed, you feel like it's wrong. It's just like, so it's not really a kid's film, although I suspect a lot of kids... Grow up watching it. It's just, it's a very complicated film in terms of emotions, um, and uh, you need all of that twee, uh, like frothy. And the songs are incredible, but you need all of that first half of the film because when the second half kicks in, and you know you feel the Nazis kind of like um, approaching and taking over Austria. Um, it's just, it's such, an, it's such an incredible film. When I was watching it, I could, you could draw quite a few parallels to, to Inglorious Bastards to it, you know. And even um, later on when you see Hateful Eight and he's put um, an intermission in Hateful Eight, I know that um, uh, when they made Oklahoma, there's kind of like an overture at the beginning. Because uh, Oklahoma was the first screen musical. So when... when They didn't really know how to make a film out of it. So when... acting like a stage musical, you mean? Yeah, it was just kind of like, how do you do that? So then what they did was they tried to make it as much like a stage musical as possible. So... And you see that in stuff like Singing in the Rain, where there's, like, these huge dance routines. They've got a sound stage and then Gene Kelly has kind of, like, orchestrated this, uh, this dance routine over this huge stage. And they just film it as live almost in like as few shots as possible to let the dancing do the talking as if it was on stage. And um, and I guess that that's what they did with Oklahoma where um, where they're kind of like letting the musical do the talking for it. They go, Well, it's a musical, it works perfectly. So it's gonna be about three hours long and there's gonna be an orchestra at the beginning and an interval in the in the middle. Um, and the sound of music's very similar in that respect where, um, you have like this intermission halfway through. Um, and the second half I don't think is as strong. Weirdly, watching it as an adult, I probably haven't, because I'm so familiar with the film and I've grown up with it, I think, um, uh, you feel like you don't really need to revisit it, you know? Because it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. But when you actually sit down and watch it, and you actually realise, you know, uh, the complexities of it, it's um, so the first half is just like absolutely solid, and then you have this interval, and we actually paused the film and then uh, did something else for a couple of hours, then came back and watched the rest in the evening, and um, and the second half is kind of like much more tense and it deals with like heartache and it's a little bit more melancholy and Maria grows up and she falls in love with the captain and you know um, and Judy Andrews is absolutely uh, just phenomenal in it and Christopher Plummer is this amazing kind of like counterpoint Um, and he is So good in that film. And so when I was talking about... uh, When I tweeted, you know, I'm going to watch some Christopher Plummer films... Um... I, I, it's, it's weird because, like, Sound of Music is such an important film to me. I always list it as one of the... It comes up quite a lot because it's just, like, it's, like, one of my earliest memories. Mm. And, obviously, I am obsessed with films and I love films. And so it comes up all the time in terms of, like, earliest memories, my relationship with my dad, um, and also kind of my, my relationship with cinema and what I think is... And it's got such a horrible reputation as being this thing that Hindus dress up in... Um, fancy dress and, and shout at the screen. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's kind of like it is that, but it's almost like up, it's almost like considered in the same breath as something like Mamma Mia Joe. Yeah, and it's kind of like it's not, it's like this actually really sophisticated, complicated film that needs the lightness of that first half for the second half of it to work. And it needs, um, there to be a film about nuns for the Nazi, you know, it's like nuns and Nazis, and then you've got. <laughs> Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer that are kind of like counterpoints to each other, and the fact that Christopher Plummer is this broken-hearted um, captain that through music learns to connect with his kids uh, after his wife dies, and um, and through music he learns how to love again. It's this beautiful. It's a beautiful film. Um, so it's in stuff like when you see 12 Monkeys and Christopher Plummer's in it, it's kind of like an oddity because you go, that's the guy from Sound of Music and he's not, he's not anything like he is in Sound of Music. He's all old. And I remember when Up came out and um, the Pixar movie Up and um, I remember kind of the, after the opening 10 minutes, it's a film about talking dogs. So it's got to be something that keeps you entertained. And, um, and one of the things was, like, Christopher Plummer plays the bad guy and up. And so whenever he's mentioned in anything, I've always been interested, but I've never spent that much time kind of going through it. So when I said, I'm going to watch some Christopher Plummer films, you and some, uh, and some other people recommended some Christopher Plummer films. So I sat down and I watched them all. And I sort of like this uh, very um, uh, sort of uneven uh, frustrating career because... Um, Sound of Music was his breakout hit. He'd done a few films before that, but Sound of Music was like his breakout hit. And I think he really resisted doing it. And he's like he's in The Man Who Would Be King, and he's very much kind of like, if he'd have wanted it or if he'd have aimed for it, he could have been kind of like a Sean Connery or a Michael Caine. Mm he was never regarded in those respects. And, and I read an interview where he's, he said he's not interested in being a superstar. He's just interested in being like a character actor and finding the parts. But what that led to was he was very often second on the bill playing uh, the bad guy. And so you see stuff like, um, what was the one that you recommended? Br- uh, Mindscape.
0: Silent Partner, I think I recommended
1: but there was, uh, there's that Joe Dante thing that you said, and it's, um, you said it's like Joe Dante. It was Mindscape, the one with um, uh, Dennis Quaid. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Where they go into dreams, and you see that second on the bill or third on the bill uh, playing like, this horrible uh, government shit. Um, he's good at it, but it's, it's kind of like a, a sort of a generic role that's heightened by him. Mm-hmm. Um, I re-watched Dragnet. I grew up hating Dragnet. Uh, just nothing in it for me. Really unimpressed by it. I never, fi- I just find it deeply unfunny. Uh, for a comedy, it's kind of, you know, un- unacceptable. <laughs> but Christopher Plummer's in it, and he's playing this very sort of, like, um, camp kind of villain... Uh, in a way that you wouldn't really expect from him because he's so sort of, like, uh, serious in everything else that he does. Um, was so funny, was funny, like, go on. I
0: was going to say, it's funny, last week when you were talking about him being in Star Trek VI, because um, uh, the day after he died on the BBC, one of the people they had interviewed was William Shatner, who grew up with him, and they were kind of sort of contemporaries in the theatre in Canada. And well, William Shatner saw him as, like... He's the guy. You know, he's the one everyone wants to be.
1: Well, there's this really weird... Because they started off doing radio together. Uh, and if not together, they were in sort of like the same rolling cast of people that did Canadian radio. And... um uh, and it's just really it's just really interesting because like Christopher Plummer was playing Henry V and Christopher Plummer got taken ill and William Shatner was his understudy and William Shatner came in and uh, uh, Christopher Plummer's got this there's, there's, there's a clip you can find it online it's Christopher Plummer talking about William Shatner and Christopher Plummer was just, like, saying that he upstaged him at every turn, because whenever Christopher, Christopher Plummer stood up to make a speech, William Shatner did it, sat down. Uh, and whenever uh, Christopher Plummer uh, raised his voice, uh, William Shatner whispered, do you know what I mean? So he just did the opposite of what um, uh, Christopher Plummer did, and he kind of, like, stole the show. Um, I just think that to, to, uh, he's so good in Star Trek 6. Star Trek 6 is... I mean, I've just really watched all the Star Wars films. I love Star Wars. I love um, how operatic it is. I love um, how mythical it is. Uh, I love that it's a fantasy. It's a fantasy more than a science fiction. Um, but I've, I'm coming to terms with the fact that I really like two-and-a-half Star Wars films. Um, Whereas with Star Trek, it is science fiction. It's not fantasy, it's not, you know, it's not a space opera, it's classic science fiction. And I like about four or five or six of those films. Uh-huh. And um, like a lot. Probably never none of them individually as much as I like the Star Wars films that I like. But they're great. And Star Trek Six is probably I I think it's better than Wrath of Khan. And um, it's definitely better than Star Trek Four with the whales in it. But I love Star Trek Four with the whales in it because it's it's nostalgic to me. It's it's what I, I grew up watching. Um, um, it's time for a song, but I think um, we could probably still talk about it. like I've we've we've got Christopher Perma films in common that we should talk about. So let's talk about that after uh, after the song.
0: We are back. Um, although I'm back on my own. Nick is still uh, indisposed while we've been listening to our um, Alice Cooper song, which I also missed because I was also indisposed for the last two minutes. Um, we've got a... Uh, to catch you up on some of the things we've been talking about, one of our Bill Pullman facts are been given is that Bill Pullman is a big fan of exotic fruits and makes his own jams, pies, and baked goods. He also loves to freeze fruit. I don't know why you would freeze fruit. He's he's an admirer of beekeepers, so he makes his own preserves. Do you ever freeze fruit, Nick? We're rejoined by Nick Helm.
1: Oh, what's happened? What's happened?
0: I was just telling him about... um, Bill Pullman's facts that he is a fan of exotic fruits and makes his own jams, pies and baked goods. I used to work opposite a fruit... Do you think,
1: do I freeze my own fruit?
0: I don't know, I've never done it. It seems like a weird thing to do to me. Um, You haven't lived? I used to live... uh, Sorry, I used to work opposite a fruit and vegetable and they had um, a sign on that said with bananas and exotic fruits. And I always wondered what an exotic fruit would be, or whether a banana would be considered exotic fruit.
1: Uh, I think a banana is exotic fruit, but it is commonplace now, isn't it? So,
0: Apparently, um, Bill Pullman's favourite food-related film of all time is Babette's Feast.
1: That's a great film. Have you got Have a favourite
0: food-related film, Nick?
1: Um, well, interestingly, um, Well... <sighs> Hmm. I watched a lot of films um, about food for when I was doing Eat Your Heart Out. Oh, yeah? Um, Well, I think it was that. But uh, but me and Johnny Sweet, when we were making Loaded, Johnny, we we talked about food, uh, films that had food in them. So there's films like Last Night, which, um, oh, no, Big Night, which is uh, the Stanley Tukey film. Tucci. Um, that's an interesting film about food. Uh, is it Tom Popo? Oh, yeah, Tam Popo. I've never seen it. Tam Popo. That's my friend Rebecca's favourite film. I think Johnny Sweet really loves it. And there's Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. So I've got, uh, I can't remember if he bought them for me or um, I bought them based on his recommendations, but they're films that kind of like I, have a I, <laughs> I
0: haven't got. I found them. Parasite when they were cooking that kind of noodle dish,
1: always thinking, "What is that? That sounds... Oh, oh yeah, I. But also, I just remember from um, uh, the host uh, when they're eating the uh, the ramen noodles in. Well, they're in the back of a van, and they're they boil a kettle, and they're all eating these ramen noodles. And I just remember whenever I get like a tub of ramen noodles, I follow the instructions. You know, um, uh, you know. It's you pour the water up to the line, you let it stand for three minutes, and then you kind of give it a stir. But in the host, they've got their chopsticks and they're just like slamming away at the noodles, trying to get them to sort of like break up as quickly as possible. Um, I think that that's uh, so. I remember stuff like that. Also, like obviously, um, the scene where they're making uh, food in Goodfellas in prison.
0: Yes, I I think think of
1: that as well. It's so descriptive. And there was that Mel and Sue TV show, Late Lunch. Hmm. Um, Or I think it was Light Lunch and Late Lunch. Yeah. It changed time slots. Um, uh, Yeah, I think Johnny Vaughan was the guest. And he came on and he kind of, like, the lunch that he made was based on the recipes that you get from uh, Godfather. Like, you're watching The Godfather... And then halfway through the film, they just stop all the action. And then one guy teaches another guy how to make meatballs. And it's kind of... I love, like, moments like that in films. Mm. So I think, uh, yeah, film, uh, food is quite, quite a cinematic thing. Also, like, the stew that they're eating at the beginning of The Good, the Bad and the Ugly where Angel Eyes comes in and helps himself to stew, and they basically have this uh, me- <laughs> Mexican standoff while they're eating stew. Is that and a- I just find that, that, that uh, you always want to know what they're eating now. Yeah,
0: yeah, I do. And I guess it's that thing where you're always going to feel hungry if you're watching something and they start cooking on screen. So uh, it, it both it both takes you out of the story, but really kind of sucks you in. You get another kind of bit of... Um, another sense.
1: Yeah. It's a
0: sensory it's, element
1: to it. Exactly what I was just about to say. It's, it's like when you're watching Goodfellas, you see them and not that I'm sort of like obsessed with gangster films, but I think it's a good example where you can see them um, and uh, you're watching them. And it's not like just this film where there are these uh, thugs going around doing stuff. You kind of like get to know a little bit about kind of who they are through the food. And when they give you the recipe, um, you realise that the men are doing the cooking as well. It's a family thing. Um, and um, and then you also can picture the tastes and the smells that are going on in that kitchen while those scenes are playing out. Um, I think that that's great. Uh, Babette's Feast is an absolutely uh, phenomenal film. Um, so I give that... A thumbs up. <laughs> um, before, uh,
0: before I ask Cooper, we were chatting about Christopher Plummer.
1: So the Christopher Plummer film is called Brainscape, not Mindscape. Um, but so based on your recommendations, I went, I, 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 I watched this. Thing. Um, so, yeah, so Dragnet, I, I hate, but he is, uh, he's not just the best thing in it. I would say he's the only good thing in it. I think he's... he's Just, hands down, fantastic in it. Um, But I knew about that growing up. There's this film called Eyewitness with um, William Hurt and Sigourney Weaver. Um, And um, that's... uh, uh, That's, like, a, a marginal thriller that he's in a little bit. I think it was both of their second films, someone was saying, or after their breakthrough films. Um, what was that Altered States and Alien and then they came came together and they made this film Christopher Plummer's in it but again he plays like a generic sort of like bad guy villain guy and so you're kind of like after the sound of music searching through all of these films kind of like going I know later on in life he was used as sort of like a generic not generic but he was like the go to guy he's not Sean Connery he's not Michael Caine he's this old character actor that's about the same age that's being used in a lot of mainstream films, you know, David Fincher uses him, Terry Gilliam, you know, he's in all of he, he, he's in all of these films, um, and he won an Oscar in 2010 uh, for that Ewan McGregor film, um, and uh, so he's kind of like. Going, but why is Christopher Plummer famous? It can't just be the sound of music, and then. You watch these films, he's just so consistently good. I remember him as well from, as the Duke of Wellington, but I haven't re-watched that from Waterloo. And then, based on your recommendation, I watched um, Murder by Decree, uh, where he plays Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper. Was that your recommendation?
0: Um, I, I've certainly liked that film, so I may have done, it, or it might have been on that list of someone else's. I may well have recommended it, though. It's very good. I guess um, Sherlock Holmes is a good one because it's also a character part, isn't it? It's a lead part, but it's also a very actory thing to play.
1: We well, do what you, you do, what you can with it. I mean, what's interesting is I so um, I did um, I did a podcast last week with uh, Josh uh, Josh and he was saying one of his favourite things is Sherlock Holmes. I love Sherlock Holmes. Uh, my girlfriend loves Sherlock Holmes, which I found out this week. Because uh, Murder by Decree and The Silent Partner were both... So Christopher Plummer was Canadian. So there was a, a Canadian film company that made a bunch of films with Christopher Plummer, Donald Sutherland. Um, uh, th- they were kind of like these Agatha Christie kind of thrillers that they, they made. Um, and there's this Canadian-British uh, production company that were making all these films. And so uh, they're not really available in England. So I had to get Murder by Decree and The Silent Partner uh, on Blu-ray. And when they arrived, it's the same production company. They've got the same trailers for each film.
0: Oh, right, OK, yeah, I, I would like to have The Silent Partner. I kind of, I, I've only ever seen that
1: about the cinema and things. I um, I feel feel sort of protective for um, uh, uh, Christopher Plummer because I feel like he deserved more. He deserved almost superstar status. Um, And when I learnt that the director of Porky's directed Murder by Decree, and it was, oh, it's a Sherlock Holmes film starring Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes, but... It's directed by the guy that did Porky's. I was assuming it would be sort of like quite an exploitative, uh, low-rent take on Sherlock Holmes. But you watch it and it's just this classic... It's, it's got an amazing cast. It's got David Hemmings in it as sort of like this side character who could have played Watson, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got James Mason... It's like, almost like the perfect um, Holmes and Watson. It's Christopher Plummer. I always said that uh, Alan Rittman would have played like, an absolutely phenomenal Sherlock Holmes. And the thing is, you know, I find Sherlock Holmes stories really comforting. I find that era really comforting. So I've never really gelled to the Benedict Cumberbatch, Robert Downey Jr. stuff, because it's kind of like everything that I love about Sherlock Holmes is kind of like um, thrown out. So I love the pacing, and I love the fact that it is quaint and old-fashioned. So when Guy Ritchie comes along and he modernises it all, he goes, no, 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 that's not what I want from Sherlock Holmes. I don't want to see him as like this uh, knuckle, uh, bare-fist-fighting um, sleuth that's working. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't need sort of like matrix angles and all of that stuff in it. And then when you see... Um, but as it comes back in the modern era, it's kind of like part of the selling point is the fact that it's Victorian, you know, for me. So so when you go back and you... you know, I love all the Basil Rathbone films. So it's kind of like when you watch Christopher Plummer do it, you know, Sherlock Holmes has the tendency of being quite a very cold character. And, and last week um, on Amazon, there's a... Um, Who's who's um Patrick McNee mm-hmm. as Watson oh, and, and Christopher, Christopher and as Holmes. And they're like older Holmes and Watson. And there's some really funny stuff in that. That's on Amazon Prime. And I guess it was two feature length part one and part two episodes of sort of a pilot T V series that never happened.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know the origin of it. I think but, it's yeah, I think they're they
1: filmed somewhere like Prague, aren't they? Somewhere I think they look like yeah. They I was going to say uh, Paris or something, but they they they're v- look very European, um, and uh, and they're very TV. They're very like nineties TV, but um, it's Christopher Lee as um, Sherlock Holmes and Patrick Mcnee as uh, Watson, and there's some funny jokes in there, and it's it's it. it it's it's kind of good, but, like, Holmes is always, like, this very sort of, like, cold, uh, sort of impenetrable uh, character, right? And when you watch Murder by Decree, it's so good. Um, and Christopher Plummer is... Unmistakably, Sherlock Holmes. But at the same time, he is of just this very warm and compassionate character. And also, <clears throat> when, James Nick, when James Mason signed on to it, he was like, I don't want to be the bumbling Watson. I don't want to be, like, the comic relief. And he sort of still is. But it's just this very warm relationship between them. You know, uh, a lot of the time, you kind of, like, wonder why they hang out. But in this, it's like you can tell that Sherlock Holmes absolutely loves uh, Dr. Watson, you know. Um, uh, And they just have this absolutely fantastic relationship where uh, Watson goes off and he does all of, like, the, the heavy lifting and all the footwork and has to kind of, like... Uh, do all the dangerous stuff where he's hanging around brothels (laughs) asking questions but Sherlock Holmes, that's beneath him and he can be left to do all the thinking Um, and it's kind of like it really sells that relationship Um, and Bob Clark did like this amazing job with it Um, and then I watched um, I I, I will let you speak but then I watched um, The Silent Partner (laughs) ironically (laughs) Um, (laughs) Uh, which um, was made the year before Murder by Decree. So Murder by Decree was 79. Silent Partner was 78. And Christopher Plummer is playing, like, a character that is absolutely... I watched this last night... It's absolutely phenomenal. So I've I've waded through all of these kind of like Christopher Plummer plays generic bad guy. He elevates the role, but he's like this generic bad guy in so many things. There's that Christopher Reeve time travel film as well, uh, where the theme tune to that is used in Groundhog Day. It's the the one that he learns how to play on the piano. Okay. And it's the theme tune to that Christopher Reeve time travel movie. I'd like to see that again. Which is kind of like you go, oh, wow, that must be an in-joke, right? It's a classical piece of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a classical piece of music, but Bill Murray in a time travel movie is learning how to play the theme tune from a time travel movie. Um, uh, But so I watched um, The Silent Partner. Christopher Plummer is so absolute. He is a bad guy in it, but he's not a generic kind of heavy. He's the most terrifying kind of psychopathic, serial killer kind of... He, it, it's as it's, it's far away from Captain Von Trapp as you can get. It's like he's, he's... And from Sherlock Holmes, which was... It's like a completely different character. It's a completely different performance. He disappears into his parts in a way that Sean Connery and uh, Michael Caine don't. Right, he becomes that character. He yeah. became Sherlock Holmes. You're watching Murder by Decree. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible performance by him. But he disappears into that performance where you're actually just going, "Well, that's Sherlock Holmes." Again, with um, Silent Partner, he does the same. And then the year before Silent Partner, so Silent Partner, he did Sandwiched in between a TV half-hour Sunday drama that he did um, uh, of uh, The Silver Blaze, which is a Sherlock Holmes story. So he played Sherlock Holmes on TV in 77 for a half hour. He played uh, the serial killer or the psychopath uh, bank robber in Silent Partner, and then he went on to do Murder by Decree where he finally, it was his life's ambition to play Sherlock Holmes, he finally got to do it in a feature film. And so what you'd think of is you'd think that the the silver blaze was his one shot as far as he knew to play Sherlock Holmes. So you'd think of that as a warm-up for Murder by Decree. But you watch it, it's a completely... It's, it's on YouTube. It's a completely different performance. Mm. He said that Sherlock Holmes would have been a drug addict, he'd have looked really ill, he'd have been gone, he'd have been thin. So you've got, like... Um, he, looks, he looks twice as old as he does two years later in Murder by Decree. And um, he's just playing kind of like this very kind of sterile... Um, uh, you know... Um, austere kind of version of Sherlock Holmes, which is what he doesn't do in the later film. It's almost like he's done that. He's ticked, tick done it that way. So when you see... I was thinking when I saw Murder by Decree, he's almost too good-looking to be Sherlock Holmes. And then when you see The Silver Blaze two years earlier, it's kind of, you know, oh, he looks... I mean, he's been made up to not, to, to sort of, like, uh, you know, spoil the Hollywood good looks that he had. Um, I just found... And then in between, he plays his character, in between two Sherlock Holmes performances, he plays his character that is so far away from that. Like, he was phenomenal. Um, I still think that Sound of Music is the film that he'll be remembered by.
0: Sure, and always will
1: be. But, but that is because... It was, uh, he, was the, he was the second lead, but not in a way where he was second fiddle. It, he was necessary to the plot. He has an absolutely full character arc, as full as the main character. He's got so much screen time in that film that you really get to revel in what he would have been as a matinee idol or, 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 or a top biller. Um, and then you've got to sift through all the other stuff to find performances as good as that, or as iconic as that. And they are there, but...
0: I think um, it goes to show that that's his thing then, right? That it's like he does want to be a character actor, and he's completely rejected the idea of being a, a star and having to play a version of himself all
1: the time. He's, well, he's so, I guess he's sort of proven that. Mm. But, um, but, but I also feel like we're sort of denied... We've been denied that a bit because he's so good as Sherlock Holmes in that film and he's so good as that killer, uh, that bank robber. In um, It's such an objectionable, disgusting part <laughs> and he's so good in it. You know, there's stuff like the fact he's wearing... Um, it's really subtle stuff, like he's wearing mascara and blusher and oh, yes. his nails are really beautifully manicured. Um, and, uh, and he's like
0: a psychopath, isn't he? He's like a proper...
1: I, I, I remember we were watching it. There's a bit when he has a semi-sex scene where um, uh, he's in um, a sauna and this woman gets naked in front of him and he starts massaging her breasts. And I turned around to my girlfriend and I said, uh, oh, uh, uh, I said, Captain Von Trapp, or something like that, right? And then the very next second, he beats the shit out of her. And then we were like both, uh, you know, we had a laugh. And then we were like, jaws to the floor. Fucking hell, what, what the fuck is going on? Like, that, this this horrible character. Um, yeah, really, uh, really, really crazy. Um, couple, you know, you, you. what do you think? Um, I was going to say,
0: well, the thing is uh, exactly that, really. I was going to talk about like, that he is kind of like the ultimate character actor in that way because he's, he's proven it. He has been a star and he's like chosen against doing that. Mm. Um, I was also going to mention that Bob Clark is the guy who directed um, Murder by Decree. He did um, Black Christmas, didn't he? Yeah. And Christmas Story. So he's done these kind of almost, like, very iconic films just through nature of being, I guess, a bit of a journeyman director. I think he's Italian,
1: isn't he? Yeah, I think he is. Uh, Christmas Story is, like, this huge, iconic American Christmas movie, which got repeated over and over again on TV uh, and became, like, a... But it's not as well known over here. But it's, like, the ultimate Christmas movie. And then he made Black Christmas, which is, like, the opposite, which is that almost got banned because all the posters had Santa Claus with an axe on it and kids were having nightmares and then he made Porky's which was like the precursor it's like Sub Animal House but the precursor to stuff like American Pie and then he made this really classy Victorian set James Mason starring movie about Sherlock Holmes which was which was great Uh, at at the end of his life he was working with Howard Stern on a remake of Porky's uh, you mean Bob Clark, not Christopher Plummer? I'm assuming. <laughs> but sure, um, he's great, and I think he's good in everything that I've seen him in. Um, but um, I, I think it's worth. The, I, I still haven't finished. You know, I've I've never seen The Man Who Would Be King, so uh, that's next on my list. And The Fall of the Roman Empire that's on my list. So uh, I'm, I'm sort of like working through stuff, but uh, it's great. Um, we should do some fan mail and then bring our guest on, right? We should, we should, Are you happy with that, Nathaniel?
0: I'm happy. I'm having some computer issues, but but I'm, I'm with you.
1: I can see. It is a combination of me being overexcited and Nathaniel not really listening to what I'm saying, and, uh, <laughs> me just... <laughs> it's a problem. I'm having a problem. But for, the listeners, I... for the listeners at home, um, I, I don't know when to shut up, but also, uh... Nathaniel isn't really in the room anyway,
2: so uh, there
1: we go. <laughs> here we go. Yeah, back uh, in the room. Back in the room. Uh, uh, Brian I, I uh, can, you you, can you take it okay we can carry on um, Brian can you take it Dear Nick and I recently watched The Bling Empire on Netflix Have you watched it? I loved it It's all about the lives of these billionaire Asian expats living in LA So glad Have you noticed that Netflix is releasing more and more reality TV shows What's your
0: opinion about that? Chief Marge No um, I haven't seen it I've noticed, I think Netflix are trying to kind of mop up everything, aren't they? They, They're trying, I noticed they had a thing on their front page today that's like a kind of, that looks like a kind of British ITV drama, kind of crime drama, and I think they're just trying to get every angle so that they've got something that, you know, my mum and dad would watch, or whatever now, and it just makes sense, because they're trying to cover all bases and be a proper channel, right?
1: I think in terms of, like, everything, Netflix is still the best. I think, I I really like Amazon Prime but the layout is fucking terrible and it's just impossible to just scroll and find what you really want Uh, like if you watch half of something it takes ages to actually find the second do you know what I mean, to pick up where you left off I think the design for Amazon Prime needs to be sorted out um, Netflix has got design and it's got content although the content is weak I do not see the point in Disney Plus other than if you want to see The Mandalorian But
0: well, I think that's the selling point right they've just got enough things that you will like I know I'll just eventually get it because there's now just things on it I want to watch but there's not I don't know if there's a lot of other stuff on it I want to watch for well, so me Netflix is, is kind of the worst one. Netflix? Yeah very, I find very little to, that I want to watch on there it's, it's full of things that all just feel a bit like, I guess I could watch that, but nothing excites me.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. And also, if you, you know, we're looking for Christopher Plummer films, you type in Christopher Plummer, and then it, um, uh, and it's got very, like, limited... Selection. Oh, you know, Kevin Costner. And it's kind of like, you've got three Kevin Costner films. Okay, right. So it's kind of like when you're... I just think the layout is really sort of, like, straightforward and easy to... Is it, though? I just think it's all just a clusterfuck. Just simplify it, guys. It's like using the BFI website sometimes, am I right? (laughs) I
0: heard uh, Quentin Tarantino interviewed recently, and he was talking about Netflix. So this is Netflix in the States, where they actually have more movies on it. And apparently he met the guy who's, like, the head of Netflix and was complaining to him about it, going, you don't even have any films from the 70s on there, you've got hardly any." He said, um, after Burt Reynolds died, I just really wanted to watch a Burt Reynolds film. So I typed in Burt Reynolds in the search bar, and there was three Burt Reynolds films. And he said, and two of those were The Longest Yard. I <laughs> exactly. mean, mm-hmm. that's right, it's that kind of, unless you like very contemporary films or a certain type of thing, it doesn't really work, because you want not well, straight get to Netflix films.
1: Box. You know, yeah, but in terms of watching classic films, you have to still, you still have to buy uh, American uh, Blu-rays and yeah. get, a, get a multi-region Blu-ray player. Um, well, uh, if you've got time for another we've got one really short hey Nick and Matt, how are you doing I can't wait for this pandemic to be over so that I can travel again if you could travel anywhere right now where would you go thanks Matt um, I would go to the South Bank and I'd go to the BFI and watch a film that's, that's what I was, was. going to say Is it really <laughs> that's all I want you know, I just,
0: I'm not bothered about going anywhere I just want to be able to do the normal things I used to do
1: I just want to go and watch a film in screen one at the BFI and, um, and that's all I want really Right, let's play a song and bring our guest in. Okay. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. We are uh, back. We're back live. We're not live. We're pre-recorded. We're in the studio. We're not in the studio. I'm in my uh, spare room, and Nat's in his washroom. Um, My name is Nick. (laughs) This is Nat, and we are joined by uh, stand-up comedian, writer, and Silent Hill enthusiast, uh, Mike Drucker. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, guys, for having me. Where are you right now?
2: I am in New York City, in Manhattan.
1: Oh, do you know what? We've spoken yeah. to a few Americans, and I don't think we've had anyone live from New York.
2: Yep, yep. So I'm the first. I'm the first. I, yeah. As you can see, my beautiful view. Um, yes.
1: Lovely. Uh, oh, uh, my friend, uh, our friend uh, Pat Bircher is a Canadian, and he's just moved to Manhattan. Uh, do, he's a comedian. Do you know him?
2: Uh, I don't, but the it's <laughs> like the past year I haven't been able to go out and meet comedians. My uh, entire social circle has been cut off.
1: He has well, he, I don't think he, I think he moved in last week, so <laughs> <laughs> probably yeah, okay. you probably sure. don't know him. I'm not sure how many gigs he's done yet. But, um, <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. Uh, you've got very beautiful glasses, by the way.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, these are uh-huh. these are my trying to look presentable glasses.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, great. for the listeners at home, uh, they're light blue. Um, Brown glass, yeah. and, and round glasses, yeah. Brown glasses, they're very nice. Um, uh, cool, great. So um, you, uh, currently, you've uh, written a book about Silent Hill.
2: That's right, right. Uh, Silent Hill 2. Uh, it's, it's part of the series called Boss Fight Books. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm actually the 27th book in the series, so it's been going on for a little while. Um, yeah, they're individual little books, like 100, 150 pages each that, you know, break down, analyze a video game, look at how it works, look at how it's made, and I chose Silent Hill too because I'm a big fan of it. And I thought as
0: you, as a comedian, when, when I saw you done it, I was like, "What?" I was kind of thinking, "What is this? Is this sort of, sort of an arch take on? What, what is the?
2: you going to read
0: it? And it's no. this weird sort of take down of it, or it's very clever? And you go, "Oh, that's very clever." It's, it's almost <laughs> like a, a sort of an analysis, which is actually poking fun at it somehow.
2: Exactly. It's, it's my, it's, 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 it's more serious, but it's actually like, it's what I, I went to grad school for, for literature. So it's almost the one time I've used my degree for anything in my life.
0: Yeah. I, w- I would say I- I'm not, I, I, I vaguely know about Silent Hill, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm not a massive kind of video game person. I think it's yeah. probably the same, right? But mm-hmm. I would say our audience Knowing, knowing the kind of people that listen to this show. Probably the kind of... I imagine what they are. They're all they're all blokes, and they're all just playing video games all day. So I reckon that's who listens to this, I reckon.
1: We've just spent uh, an hour talking about The Sound of Music, so I think that the, our listeners are desperate to be talking about Silent Hill 2 right now. Um, so uh, I just, all I know about Silent Hill really is that, um, that it, it, at the time it felt like there was Resident Evil mm-hmm. and that was like a horror computer game, um, uh, which kind of, um, uh, made you feel like you were there yeah. and, uh, and then Silent Hill felt like, oh, right, well, that works. Let's do something else. And then they made kind of a film with mm-hmm. Sean Bean in it. Uh, <laughs> And then... Uh, kind
2: of a film. Uh, kind, kind of a of film. Of a film. <laughs> no, that's not <laughs> inaccurate. It is kind of a film.
1: It's <laughs> <laughs> Sean Bean in it. And then... Uh, and it's... And, it's just, and actually, weirdly, despite the fact that I've never played them, I've never uh, seen the film, uh, during lockdown, I have watched a uh, 45-minute analysis on the character Pyramid Head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah! i've probably uh, seen that too and i watched like, all of like, the design processes that they went through in order to get to that design and i don't know why i watched it but i watched the whole... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been a long up, year. Now, it's been a long year yeah um, so uh so tell us about um uh how you got into silent hill and all of this stuff um, I've always been into video can I games. Just point out that that yeah. was the worst question I've ever asked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us about how you got into Silent Hill and all of this stuff?
2: <laughs> and I was, I was like, I was like, I'm gonna try to do it. I'm gonna try. I guess as a child, I liked games, and I kept playing those games. And um, no, I was, uh, you know, in high school, me and my friends were super into video games, and Silent Hill was like one of the the first Silent Hill was one of the first games (laughs) to truly scare me. Like, you know, Resident Evil is very, like, you have guns and you're blasting through things, and Silent Hill is a little more claustrophobic. Like, you'll still have weapons, but it's less you're a super soldier blasting through something, and it's more like you're a normal guy who's going through hell. And to me, that was very compelling, because I never felt like, I never connected to, like, you know, super soldiers, I connect to losers. And so Silent Hill 2 was the sequel to that. And that, and it has such a good story. And it's such like a, for the time, especially 2001, it's such a mature story in a video game and it touches on so many issues and it holds up so well today um, that I've just thought about it for 20 years. So when I got the chance to write about it, I took it.
1: So is it sort of like a puzzle solving game?
2: Uh, It's sort of like puzzle solving. Uh, It's sort of like you're walking around an abandoned town You know, you fight monsters, but really most of that's optional. You can run from them, so the combat's not a big part of the experience. Um, But yeah, you're walking around a town, you're solving puzzles, you're kind of trying to figure out uh, what happened. You play this guy, James Sunderland, who showed up to, he received a letter from his wife who's been dead for a few years that says, like, come back to this town where we went on vacation together, which is the town of Silent Hill. And so he shows up and the whole game is him trying to figure out, is his wife dead? Is his wife alive? Why did she ask him to come back? And it's a very sad story.
1: Oh, so so (laughs) I I grew up up playing Monkey Island.
2: Yes, totally different. The exact opposite of Monkey Island. So
1: it's like a sad, scary Monkey Island where
2: where
1: getting anywhere is optional.
2: If you love the fun of Monkey Island, (laughs) Silent Hill 2 might still not be for you. At any point during Silent Hill 2, does anyone jump on a mushroom? Nobody dr- Nobody drops right. on a mushroom, which is yeah. my main criticism in the book. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> but
0: why Why Silent Hill 2 and not Silent Hill? I think that was the main thing that made me think it must be a parody. I was like, no, oh, it's going to be a
2: parody. Um, it's just, it's, you know, um, the first two games, they take place in the same town, but they have very different stories, and they sort of function very differently. And to me, 2 is the better overall experience. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I know it sounds, it's, it's everything about it, it should be a comedy book, and it's yeah. not... <laughs> I think over here, richard Iwadine
0: kind of wrote uh has written a book about uh, an analysis of a film that's kind of a film he doesn't really like, but it's done in a way where it's a very kind of um literate and yeah you know, and it's it's partly it's a big i i saw sort of oh it's like that it's going to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you work for Nintendo? I did. We
2: yeah, I worked for Nintendo uh, for a couple of years in the localization department, uh, which means I, uh, I worked with Japanese translators to make things make sense in English. So idioms or accents or, you know, phrases or jokes or cultural references. Like a lot of stuff when you're translating, it's not just, you know, you're not just fixing the grammar. You're also like, all right, this character has a rough and tumble accent. What would we make that accent in English versus Japanese?
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's part of the charm now of um, old video games. It's gone, though. But you, yeah. you're often quite something charming where you can sort of have this Japanese version of uh, American English or whatever. is quite a, yeah. quite a fun thing to hear. <laughs> but I guess that's the whole point is to make it
2: seem... Yeah, to make it like seem it's... like it's supposed to be in English. Or in other languages. Uh, at Nintendo, we would translate it, we would localize it in English. And then we had a Latin American Spanish department and a French Canadian Spanish department, which would then send it to Europe for European Spanish, European French, and, you know, fucking UK English, because you had to add use to everything. Well, um, I, wouldn't, but,
0: I wouldn't have... I can, <laughs> I can see that. I can see the use, but I would have thought, we're so used to American culture that I'm sure yeah. we just basically got the American version of it and gone, sure, ba- this is...
2: Basically, yeah, but, you know, we'd work with Nintendo of Europe and, like, b- I mean, British writers would be like, hey, this phrase is not the phrase you want to use over yeah. here. And so we'd try to smooth things out to make it work on both coasts. And this would be what year you're looking for Nintendo? 2010 to 2012. So at this time, you're also performing stand-up? Also performing stand-up, also touring. Uh, you know, I wrote for a couple of award shows while I was at Nintendo. yeah. And
1: what year What year did you start doing stand-up? Yeah, so when, so, so when did you when did you start, and why did you start doing stand-up?
2: I uh, started doing stand-up in 2005 when I was uh, in college, and I, I did it on a whim. A couple of people had told me I was funny. I thought, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, I'll do almost like signing up for a gym, where you're like, I'll go a couple times, and then it'll be out of my system, and I don't have to do this anymore. And... I did an open mic and I liked it and I kept doing it. And over time I started to I started to realize I was more of a writer than a performer. I like doing stand-up, but I'm not an actor. I'm not a good actor. I've tried it, so I focused on writing and creating. And I started writing for places like The Onion and The New Yorker. And from that, you know, I started to pivot to TV. So while I was doing stand-up, I was also getting a lot of writing on. I was a freelancer for Saturday Night Live, so I got a lot of jokes on there. And it just turned into a career.
0: I saw, like, one of your early successes. You're in a stand-up competition, So You Think You're Funny. Yeah, We've got got a a competition in Edinburgh with the same name, but I imagine it's a completely different thing. It's completely, yeah. And it's something to do, which I couldn't work out, with Disney's Ratatouille or the Disney Pixar Ratatouille (laughs) movie. So how can you do a stand-up competition, which is
2: also about a Pixar movie? Um so the movie Ratatouille uh stars Patton Oswald and Janine Garofalo, which Big are fun. both stand ups. And so their management company uh decided to have this competition around it where they're to promote the movie, they're like, All right, so we'll have a stand up competition for young amateur stand ups and the winners will get to perform with Janine Garofalo and Patton Oswald. And I was one of the winners of that. And now that's also my management company, luckily. So that's how I got managed. Okay, I can kind of... That kind of
0: makes sense. As a marketing thing, it does seem strange. So you go, we've yeah, basically yeah. made this film about a rat in Paris who can cook. Cook who cook. cook. Um, <laughs> uh, so what should we do to promote it? What's, what can we do around that? <laughs> and someone says, I don't know, a stand-up comedy competition? Right. And go, that sounds like sure. absolutely nothing to do with the movie. Right.
2: Is it cheap to do? Yes. Great, do it. <laughs> then do it.
1: But then I imagine that it's a way of um, promoting a kid's film about a talking chef mouse Yeah, to a, a rat, I should say. <laughs> uh, yeah, <sure. laughs> otherwise it'd be called mouse a wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> it's, it's the clues in the title, Nick. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a way of like, promoting it to an audience that wouldn't necessarily... Oh, sorry, I'm thinking out loud now. Um... <laughs> 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 I, I, you I was actually thinking as if you were a marketing
2: person yeah. in 2007
1: but it's sort of like oh it's a way of letting grown-ups know that Patton Oswalt has made a kids film you
2: know? yeah I think I think it's partially that and it's partially like you know it was early social media, so I think they're like, how do we get people just posting about a thing when they still didn't know how social media works? So I think it was part of that as well. If you pull the string on it, though, it's not a good idea. I'm glad yeah. they did it, but yeah. it's not a good idea. Well,
1: absolutely. You did very well out of it. Yeah. Um, I did. But the- also, you wouldn't imagine that you would
2: have
0: done well out of it. You know, <laughs> this thing where it would be the kind of thing you go, well, what is this competition? <laughs> is it established competition? Um, no, no. It's a competition that competition. Disney Pixar have created. To promote the film about the uh, a, a, a chef rap, <laughs> <But> it shouldn't <laughs> have. It shouldn't <laughs> have. Worked. I mean, it shouldn't all have worked here.
2: I'm glad. I'm glad it's done very well for you. But it shouldn't. Shouldn't. I don't have think worked, it worked right? for anyone but me. I think I was the only one to benefit. They probably had fewer people go to the movie because of it. Yeah, sure. that, I mean, they should have gone. Do you want to be in a Pixar movie? Maybe that could have been the prize, right? Ah, oh, that would have been such a great prize. <laughs>
1: oh, I mean, hmm. I did um, the British say you think you're funny.
2: So today, um, what year were you in it?
1: Nick? I was two thousand and seven. Me too. And at the end of the competition, I was the semi-finalist. Did you mean What? So would we have been on stage together? No. At the end of the whole, <laughs> so you think you funny? Process. I was never less sure whether I was funny or not. Yes. Yeah, oh. me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh. You, got, you, you got you got management out of it, so, you know, swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Yeah,
2: yeah, and although comedy competitions are death, no matter how long you do comedy. And I
0: imagine it's the same thing. I used to find competitions horrible. Horrible. Because it's the one time when, despite what people seem to think about stand-up, certainly over here, is that I find... A great deal of kind of camaraderie about it yeah the competitions are the one bit where you really feel like everyone's kind of hoping you're gonna die on your ass yeah than, but they, 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 you're probably with friends who are kind yeah. of going i hope you do really badly tonight <laughs> that's the wrong time that that is
2: somehow at the back of their mind right and the, and when you do badly it's them being like all right good yeah yeah. Exactly. It's a, uh, it's a strange thing. And I don't think
0: that's true at any other time. I think there's a great deal of kind of camaraderie about stand up, I always find. And, and everyone's kind of in it. And you're basically trying to create a good night. Yeah. You want, you want everyone to have. And the person, I always think, if the person on before you does well, I always think it's going to make it easier for me because they're laughing. Yeah. They're in a they're good in mood. The mood. They're, they're, there they're for enjoying it. themselves.
1: Yeah. 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 I would absolutely hate it when. Um, I was on with a bunch of rubbish acts, and I was saying, oh, Muggins here has got to save the night. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and night after night, that
0: happened. <laughs> <laughs> I was on that night, wasn't I?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's where <laughs> well, we, no, met. No, no. <laughs> we met. You remember, we met. So, through stand-up, I mean, Saturday Night Live is obviously internationally uh, renowned, Um, So how did you come about? What was the process of becoming a writer on Saturday Night Live?
2: Um, Well, I was only a freelancer, so I want to be... I don't want to claim more than I was there. Um, But that was, like, my first time getting anything on television, so that was significant. Um, It was... I uh, interned for NBC, the, you know, company that makes SNL for a while, and through that I was able to meet Seth Meyers. And the thing about shows like that is if you're young and you love comedy, they're really excited to like talk to you about comedy. Cause a lot of people who, a lot of younger people in college or after college who work at the show are very interested in celebrities. And there's a difference between celebrity and comedy. So, you know, a lot of people want to meet Lady Gaga, which is great. I wanted to write comedy. So they were very supportive of me. And Seth let, it, let me start submitting jokes to weekend update, uh, Seth Meyers. And eventually I started to get some on. It took me a, maybe a year But then I started to get more and more and more on. And from that, Seth hired me at award shows. And from that, I was recommended to be a full-on staff writer at Jimmy Fallon. Um, So really, it was just loving comedy and sort of showing that I love comedy that got me in the door.
0: And is that the ultimate So I know you're saying you haven't had a lot of time for stand-up. And I guess stand-up isn't happening, right? It's
2: happening a little. Places are starting to open up. Like my regular club just started taking avails again.
1: What's your regular
2: club? Uh, Eastville Comedy Club in Brooklyn.
1: Right.
2: It's just a fun, it's a fun club that like locals go to, which makes it, I don't like, do you guys ever play for tourists and it's a little bit different than playing for like locals?
1: Yeah. Yeah. They they hate me. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's what I mean though. That's what I mean. Yeah, sure. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Tourists tourists from Sweden who wanted to see Dave Chappelle don't like me.
1: (laughs) No. Whereas when I play for um, like regular audiences, they really hate me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, uh, I always think it's, um, especially over here, there's often lots of clubs around central London Mm -hmm. that when you get there, you go, oh, this is good. It's really busy. But it's full of people that they basically, it's tourists that they've basically dragged into a comedy club with what what almost feels like a net or something. And they don't really want to be there. They want to have gone somewhere for the evening. And so they, they get to a comedy club. And often it's a thing where there's people who are, are from different places and more power to them, and they're having a look around, but not a lot of them will even have English as a first language, maybe. Yeah. And yeah. they're watching a show, and they often look confused. And the reason they look confused is because often they don't really know what you're saying.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and they think a the kind the worst of bad. place to
0: go, right?
2: Yeah but i'm sure like you know you're on you're in london or you're in new york and like someone's like hey hey you're going to see a cuz cele- i don't know like in hey. new york they'll lie to tourists and they'll be like there's a like you'll see people from tv on the show tonight and sometimes that happens but sometimes it's someone who was on tv in like 1987 yeah. you know like um yeah we'd get these tourists who are clearly disappointed or like you know families who clearly this was their big trip to new york and they were so excited and just them having to spend 3 hours bored <laughs> And it feels like no one wants to be there. I don't want no. to be here. Right. That's like, I've definitely on stage had moments where I've been like, to the audience, I've been like, I, I also feel how weird this is. Just so you know, I'm here too. You know, I'd, I'd love for you to have a good time, but right. I don't think we're going to be able to achieve it.
1: <laughs> Let's just
2: ride this out.
1: So have you, Um. so I, I, when I was in New York, when did I go to New York about... um. The time that I'm thinking was probably about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went to a bunch of comedy clubs, went to the cellar. Uh, well, the one that I really remember that stood out was we went to Dangerfields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, Dangerfields felt like a quite... Um, what's Dangerfields like?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a slightly older club, although I think they might have renovated it since then. Sure. But it was it had an older feel to it. Um, there's, could... like, a couple clubs that felt... Like, not old, like terrible but just like more traditional clubby
1: no well it felt sort of like i because when i started out i started out working for a comedy club uh, i used to put the chairs out mm-hmm. um and uh and then i got to watch free comedy when i started out when, I, when you know when i first started um and there would be one show a night yeah and then that's how it worked. what I remember about Dangerfields, there was an early show, there was a show, and then there was a late show. And yeah. the turnaround was literally one audience comes out and the next audience goes in. And mm-hmm. while the last act is on, is that called the check spot?
2: Check spot, check spot. The, that's death, the check spot. It's
1: the, it's the worst, right? So in it England... Is- <laughs> In England, you're the headliner, right? And yeah. If you go on last, that means you're the best. If, but when I was in Dangerfield, it was just like, if you work hard enough, you get to go on last and compete with all of the waiting staff shouting over you, saying, like, hey, buddy, you owe us $125. <laughs> and it's just kind of like... Uh, and then, because we sat in a whole group, and, uh, and we had to sort of, like, chat amongst ourselves and go, well, you owe 10 and you owe 15 yeah. And you're, like, working out how much you owe... And there's a guy on stage that's kind of like with his guitar, and you think wow, <laughs> oh, you must no. have you must have travelled on the subway with your guitar, man. That's terrible. Um, uh. It was, it was it, so, so, and then, as soon as he gets off stage they 're literally like, Get the fuck out of here we've got another we've got another show that's starting in two minutes, and yeah. it's kind of like this machine isn 't it um
2: it really is a lot of clubs are like that in new york yeah
1: but but then when it went to, to somewhere like the Upright citizens brigade that's mm-hmm. kind of um, that's obviously a lot more um, uh, laid back and then yeah, uh, and, and he's more. I think it's more representation of the sort of clubs that you get in England.
2: Right. Mm. That's good because I like that more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's... I, haven't, I haven't performed in England for maybe ten years, eleven years, and oh, then yeah. I don't even. I did bar shows. I don't even remember where I went up. Okay,
1: but in a way, they're the best shows. I. Th- it was fun.
2: I had fun. I just was also drunk a lot, <laughs> so <laughs> sure. don't quite remember as much. Sure.
0: And you have just been – so you're currently on the
2: um, Samantha Bee Show. Yep, yep. I am a co-head writer, co-executive producer.
0: And so you are – and you have been there in the period you've just had in the States, which has been an interesting period of time in the world, especially in the States, I'd imagine.
2: Yep, yep, it was. (laughs) How was
0: that for you? you, you? So have you managed to document the entire Trump era of presidency
2: Um, well, I've only been with this show since 2018, so I don't have the entire Trump era, but yeah, we worked remotely all the way through it. You know, we had one week, we had one week of the show where they were like, Hey, we can't have an audience. And we shot in the studio. And then for six months we had to shoot from Sam's actual house, you know, like she was shooting from her backyard, but no, we worked remote. We're still working remote. We'll probably work remote until the end of the summer. So I've kind of just been in this bunker with a ton of, you know, toys and video games writing for the show. Um, that said, it's very lucky since a lot of my friends in TV lost their jobs. Um, being in New York was scary at first just because it was insane here. But I think because it was insane here first, we're now the best at it not being insane in America. You mean because everyone got it at once? <laughs> yeah, everyone got it at once. And we were like, oh, we can't do it like this. And then we got our like shit together. But other states were like, oh, we're fine. And now they're like Texas and California are being hit hard. So what has it been like? Has... I mean, I'm
0: sure you'd rather not have Trump, but was it in a way a gift to be writing in
2: that era? Was it? Um, you know, it's I, I. would say I would say it was a minor silver lining that I was able to get like work and write about it. But I think the overall dark cloud was much worse than it. So it's hard for me to be like it's it's a blessing because it wasn't for anybody. But you know, I got to work, which is always good. But I I would have preferred to have had to have had more trouble finding work than him be president.
1: Yeah. Sure, but I have noticed a thing by watching uh, late night. So I watched Seth, uh, Seth Meyers, mm-hmm. and uh, Jimmy Fallon and uh, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, and I, it's kind of I, I sort of watched them in that order, mm-hmm. and um, and it was almost like overnight, the, all the Trump stuff was happening, and it was kind of like riveting to watch yeah. the, to watch the monologues. Yeah. Um, and then overnight, it was kind of like oh biden's a bit old <laughs> and then it's yep, kind of like yep 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 and you go oh because there was uh, although uh, you know you could tell as well that, um, that all three of those guys they were so angry right right you know um especially it's like trump had been guests on some of their shows uh in the yep. build-up of it. um but it's sort of like, they're so angry. And then uh, and then it must be sort of like, you know, the first few shows of like, um, it, it, maybe Jimmy Kimmel was like saying, it's so great not to hear his voice every day. And then it's kind of like, after about a week of that, it's kind of like, yeah, but, but it, was also, it was also really handy, wasn't it? Because it was <laughs> a,
2: writing, constant,
1: a constant
2: writing material. material. Hmm. It was, you're right. Um, uh, uh, but I would also say that it's now forcing us to write better jokes because we've had oh. the crutch of Trump for so long. So it might be more challenging, but at least out of that challenge will become something fucking original.
0: Yeah. Because you have, you know, you have this idea of there are certain things like over here, if right. you're watching a topical satirical show, they will be doing stuff about Boris Johnson and there right. are certain things about Boris Johnson. He's got his hair. He's yeah. got. He, no one seems to know how many kids he's got. Right. So you've <laughs> <have laughs> like um, he doesn't see his kids, does he? Ha- how many do he have? No one <laughs> he's got. You, you, so you have these little jokes that are almost like half jokes already. already right. So whatever's happening, you can kind of revert back to the, the fact that yeah. he doesn't know how many kids he's got? Or there's always like these different punchlines, and then when you've got a whole new guy comes in suddenly you've got to throw out all these kind of, I guess what they are, they're kind of easy go-tos, aren't they?
2: Yeah, they're easy go-tos. Or, like, he's such a familiar villain that the audience is going to applaud for you whether you're funny or not, Yeah, you know, mm. uh, which, you know, we call clapter, which is like, you know, when you say a line and everyone's like, yes, yes, and you're like, I didn't say anything funny, though.
1: Sure. And also, um, also once you've taken away the fact that um, you've got the. This- people that are angry about what they're saying yeah it's kind of like you, in a way you don't actually need to be funny at all as long as you make a point
2: yes yeah but you know i got into this to be funny so i'm you know i mean i like making a point i like writing topical jokes i'm you know it's most of my career but i want it mm-hmm. to be funny um i want to i you know i want to be a comedy writer who maybe makes a difference or makes people feel better but comedy's first for me
0: mm-hmm. and um I know you're not a a political analyst, but do you think he's someone who we'll see again in
2: politics in the the forefront? I think we'll see him again. I don't think he's going to... Maybe he will. I don't know if he'll run again. I think he's going to use the specter of him running to scare people into doing what he wants. But I think he's kind of a coward. So I think the fact that he was beat makes him reluctant to try again. You know, he's like one of those people who's like, I'd fight you again, but, you know, I can't right now and it's like, no, you lost the bar fight. You're not going to fight anyone again. And so that's how I feel about him. Um, but yeah, but I mean, you know, in America, we also love, we love Boris Johnson because he's easy to make fun of for us. Like whenever there's like a prime minister who's fucking a cartoon character, that's such a blessing because it gives us so much more. Although you don't know how hard on multiple shows I've tried to get parliament insult things onto the show and American audiences aren't with it. No, (laughs) no, It's I all, am obsessed with the Parliament insults.
0: <laughs> but there it is it's, it's in, but I find that element of it so childish as well. <laughs> it and also it's, doesn't it's, affect they me. It's a to school together. So they are actually <laughs> enacting these little kind of petty feuds that they had when they all went to the same school. And yeah. The,
1: when they all fucked the same pig. <laughs> it's like... It's like um, yeah, but the, but British politics got so depressing and scary that um, I was just to- I, I solely focused on Donald Trump for the first yeah. for the first half of last year, and that made me feel a lot be- a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a nervous breakdown. Um, I remember. I remember when Brexit happened? Me and
2: the woman I was living with at the time, we were like, "Well, at least that can't happen here." And then immediately <laughs> Trump was elected.
1: <laughs> oh God, it was like one thing after another. <clears throat> um, so, have you ever played Alien: Isolation? I have. That's scary, isn't it?
2: It is very scary, and it's it's well done. It like they really recreated the look of the Alien films.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Are you looking at a list of horror games to ask me
1: about? No, no. Um, I bought it an started Xbox. with A. <laughs> I bought an Xbox okay. because I love the Alien films. But Alien right. Is- I, 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 so I bought Alien: Isolation, uh, and I was living on my own in um, in, a, in a in a in a flat or an apartment. Uh, it was a flat uh, with a downstairs uh, basement area, and it was kind of creepy and I played maybe the first 10 minutes of... I, I didn't play the first 10 minutes. I played it for 10 minutes, and it was too scary, and that was three years ago, and I've never played it again. Um, <laughs> but I do like Monkey Island, so, you know... It's
2: yeah. like, uh, Alien Isolation's a lot like Monkey Island, just different.
1: So um, so in terms of, like, horror games, uh, mm-hmm. is, uh, is, is that sort of like what Silent Hill is like, then?
2: Um Silent Hill is a little less there's not many jump scares in it. It's a little more creepy and sad. Um so you know something like um did you see something like it's not the same as Midsummer, but it's like a slow burn horror film. It's not like things are jumping out at you and you're like ah, it's not like paranormal activity. It's more like the more you learn, the sadder you get and the darker it gets.
1: Like um, um don't look now. Yeah.
2: Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Something that's a little more slow burn, which is also what I like about it is it's not just like a thing jumping out of a window. It's kind of like, oh, what's going on here?
0: And I guess that's, correct me if I'm wrong, that's what makes it kind of unique and unusual and different from the first one.
2: Yes, exactly. Um, The first one had a great story, but it was still a little more action based. And this is much more like exploration story.
0: And does it feel like this is a thing where you've written this book where you're trying to convince people and going, no, really, Go back to Silent Hill. Or is it a thing where, if you're a gamer, everyone's like, for sure, Silent Hill too?
2: I think more the latter. I think it's more like me being like, here's how much I love this game, and I have the opportunity to write about it. Um,
1: I, do, I do find it really interesting that Nathaniel is finding this concept so difficult to grasp. When, <laughs> when that's what this show is, Nat.
0: I know. Well, <laughs> I would say... This show, this is probably unrepresentative because this show is usually the nerdiest show. Except right. up on is a subject that neither me and Nick knows a lot about because I've right. not really played a lot of computer. <laughs> so it feels like I now feel like I that I am the most mainstream. <laughs> What's, what even is that? What is a game? A <laughs> For your whole... me, I think I completely understand and I really. No, and I know from other people that video games have moved on a long way since Golden Age. Yeah. Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people yeah. Hey, I was playing. Hey, you know what? I was playing The Last of Us 2. and I there cried. You know. And I go, in my brain goes, I don't want to cry if I'm playing a computer game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't want to cry. The last time, um, <laughs> I do. the last time <laughs> I cried. That time I played playing a computer game was when my friend beat me at Doctor Mario, um, and uh, they got a really high score. Um, but the whole, but the whole, your whole way of approaching this, Nat, has been it, um, you're a comedian and you've written seriously about a thing that you like, and that's <laughs> what we're meant to do on I the show. This
0: is exactly what we do on this thing. It feels re- it's a really odd interview for that reason,
1: right? But, yeah, because of because it, of you, Nat. Like, because of you. <laughs> you. You're doing it, and you're continually doing it. Okay, right, okay. Yes, so what we, what, we, what we ask all the, every week, but we never, ever get round to it, is we ask our guests to talk about some of the things that they are big fans of, right? Yes. Um, so uh, the song that we played for you, we played Amish Paradise by Weird Al Yankovic. Um, so what is it about Amish Paradise... Mm-hmm. or Weird out that you specifically like?
2: Uh, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a song that reminds me of a very specific time in my life when, you know, like, and the thing is, it's a comedy song. It's a parody of another song. It's a silly song. But because I was like a lonely nerdy kid who liked comedy, you know, I liked things like Nirvana. I liked, I liked regular music, but that song was like a song that felt like it was written for me in the sense that like, here's a song that's only purpose is to be goofy and funny and, that struck me in a weird way because it's sort of like it was also the first album I ever bought with my own money. Um, it just sort of felt like the moment it didn't, it wasn't the moment I decided to do comedy, but I was like, oh, it's comedy, something I really, really like. And so that song's always felt weirdly important.
1: Well, um, well, com- comedy's like that, and, and um, so what I would say is I get very emotional when I think about Leslie Nelson, yeah, um, because I think he's one of the greatest performers. If not one of the greatest actors uh, that ever lived, uh, when you look at um, uh, Airplane and uh, Naked Gun, and Weird Al is in, yeah, uh, the Naked Gun films. Um, but when you look at when you look at those, and it hit me, it, it hits me, and I think that a lot of the time there's sort of like a debate over what's better, Airplane, Naked Gun, and I just like Naked Gun is just a good film, like yeah. it's a classic all-time it's good. film. It's a good film. It tells a story. There's characters in it that you love. There are yeah. It's silly, but it's a, it's, a, it's a well-made, good film that is almost watertight. And it's got a plot, and it's got its own thing. And so when people kind of... I feel like that is the sort of film that was yeah. made specifically for me. And um, with, um, with Weird Al, it's... Well, I, I, I completely understand that, where... Especially back then. So what year was that? That was like uh, late 90s? Yeah, I
2: think I want to say 96-ish, but I could be off on the date. I don't have it. Um, It It's very hot off the back of Gangster's Paradise. Yes. Um,
1: There was, because there wasn't wasn't social... So the stuff that I'm still passionate about in my life uh, is the stuff that I discovered almost uh, by accident off of no recommendations from other people. Yeah. So stuff like um Tommy Boy. I went to see Tommy Boy uh because Babe was full and uh and, and Chris Farley wasn't a thing over here. Yeah. So, so I went to see Time Boy, and, then, and I, I've loved that film ever since. Or Alice Cooper, or Army of Darkness. These are films and uh, music that I discovered from going into a record shop or a video yeah. shop and, and taking a chance on stuff. And it wasn't the internet, and there wasn't social media, and, and I was a lonely child. And so to find these things that you grow up with, they're really important, I think. So is that what you saying?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I think we absolutely agree. And no, I feel the same way, like, Naked Gun and Airplane are good movies. And people are like, they're stupid. And you're like, yeah, that's what that's what they did with the movie. They succeeded in making a good, stupid movie.
1: Whereas you can watch other films that are actually just just stupid. Right. And you go, they're, you know... We we talk, I don't want to get you in trouble with anyone that you know, but, like, stuff like Master of Disguise starring Dana Carvey.
2: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the <laughs>
1: worst films ever made. <laughs> <laughs> and you go, well, that's a stupid film. And you go, yeah, yeah. But, but... And even Airplane is based on Zero Hour. Yeah. Naked Gun feels like they actually came up with the plot from scratch with this one, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but with but with Weird Al, I mean, he did um, the opening credits to Spy Hard. Mm-hmm. He did. Um, he he did like cameo appearances in all the Naked Guns. He also did his own film UHF. Did you ever? Which see I that? love.
2: Uh, UHF. I weirdly, whenever I get a new job in TV, I listen to the song UHF on the first day.
1: Right, because UHF sort of did for cable TV what he did for popular music, wasn't it?
2: Yeah.
0: Exactly. I think, I think that's what makes him unusual because he's someone who certainly like parody records. They're certainly big over here and have been forever, but right. it, it almost feels like a radio thing, almost like a comedy radio thing. But what Weird Al does, he puts those on kind of pop radio. Yeah. I remember yeah. growing up and having like Eat It. It would be played on like pop radio. Yeah. Not not. It's not sort of. Um, it actually. It's like a hit record. It sells as a single. It's not. It's not something you get as part of a sketch show. Or right. part of a sort of radio comedy bit. It's it's he releases them as proper. They're like proper pop radio. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like novelty records, sure. But it's almost it's almost like he's doing something different. He's he's playing to the kind of pop crowd as well. Yeah. He's, not, he's not exactly like in that way. He's I mean, he's totally a comedian. Of course, he's totally a comic. Except right. it feels like he's also playing to
2: people that buy pop music. You know. He's, yeah. I've seen him play live and he's him and his band are good musicians. You know, they're not just like, you know, uh, playing like a simple beat and singing a parody. It's like, they're playing music well. Um, so I think that's part of it too. I think that he's like, he's not just funny, but he's actually good at making the music sound good. So you want to listen to it again. It's not just like, oh, that was funny. And then you're done.
1: And there's also a certain skill of it, which, uh, when he's doing his albums, it's like finding which songs have actually hit the zeitgeist. It's not like uh, mm-hmm. just taking generic songs and kind of doing covers of them. It's like finding which ones... Um, what was the... It was uh, the Star Wars song that he did. Uh, to oh. Bye-bye, Miss American Pie.
2: Yep, The Saga Begins, it was called.
1: Um, and it's kind of like it's, it's, it's taking... Um, who's big in music and what's big in popular culture and sort of combining it and making this thing, you know. Um, I don't really like... Because I'm a musician as well, and I steer clear of kind of parody songs, Um, and it's not really my thing. But with Weird Al, kind of, you make an exception because he does it so well.
0: Right, yeah. I would Um, also imagine that a Weird Al show is probably better than most shows you'd see because it's definitely the kind of show that everyone there will be absolutely excited to be there. You're yep. not a casual Weird
2: Al fans, I imagine. <laughs> no, like, that's exactly right. He's also, like, he's the one, he's... I, I don't get starstruck, but he's, like, the one celebrity I've ever met that I was like, you're Weird Al. And he was like, yeah, and I, and I met him when I was working at Fallon, so I was there for a reason. I wasn't scaring him like I was <laughs> supposed to be there and i just didn't know what to say to him it was it was the most nervous i've been
0: um, and one of your other choices was uh, a choice of film is the film the thing yeah I love to film the thing and me and nick talk about the thing every week yeah thumbs up and this is our opportunity this week to talk about the thing yes. with someone who isn't either nick or i i've
1: got i've got three the thing posters <laughs> my
2: the oh, wow. the unpublished novella that they changed into "Who Goes There." Right.
1: Wait,
2: right. I also have a board game, which I won't ruin the audio grabbing.
1: Sure. <laughs> um, so we, uh, I saw. Yeah, we saw that your thing was one of the, the thing was one of the choices. We mention it by accident every single week <laughs> for, the, for the for the last two oh years. God. Try not to talk about it. I mean, we, he- didn't even, we didn't even realize how often we mentioned it until, f- <laughs> uh, until listeners started writing in saying, Are you going to talk about The Thing again? And we were like, What? We don't talk about The Thing, do we? We talk about it every week. Uh, but we haven't talked about it yet because we knew you were going <laughs> to, it was one of your choices. Um, so, what is it about The Thing that you like? Okay, so The Thing is, um, yeah, it's one of the best films ever made. <laughs> I agree with you.
2: I wholeheartedly agree. I think because it's such a contained, it's such a contained movie. It's like, you know, it's nobody, nobody gets in, nobody gets out, which is always such a great story. And it's so many good, it just, it's well-paced. There's so many good actors in it. You don't know what's going to happen. The practical effects still hold up perfectly. Like everything about it is enjoyable to watch every time.
1: Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah. no, I know you guys agree.
1: What he said, guys. Um, Yeah, (laughs) one of the things, one of my favourite things about it is that um, uh, Ennio Morricone does the score for it. And when Ennio Morricone was asked to do the score he was in such disbelief that John Carpenter wasn't doing the score himself. He said, hey, why aren't you doing the score? And John Carpenter said, oh, they won't let me. So (laughs) so Ennio Morricone said, I'll do it like uh, John Carpenter tribute. (laughs) So everyone thinks that John Carpenter did the score for the thing because Ennio Morricone, who's this incredible musician, deliberately did sort of like a John Carpenter parody just to sort of like make it fit with all of his other films. I think that's great. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, it's brilliant, and so it's it's really weird because the thing, because uh, John Carpenter's obviously we went to Nat, we went to see John Carpenter a couple of years ago, didn't we? Um, and uh, yeah, so that thing soundtrack just fits right in with all of his other. Uh, but I like that he plays it.
0: He plays he plays the thing soundtrack at his own gigs. He does. <laughs> like I'll do a cover now.
2: <laughs> It's the thing. It's the thing. <laughs> you guys might know this one. It's the thing. <laughs>
1: um, and also, it's kind of. Um, uh, I love the fact that Kurt Russell and John Carpenter made all these films together, and they were kind of like. So I've, I've got a picture. I've got a picture of um, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter on the set of uh, uh, the Big Trouble in Little China and they've got their arms folded together and they stood next to each other and they've posed and uh, it's on my girlfriend's side of the bed <laughs> 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 like uh, I, I love them so, <laughs> I love them so much every time, I, <laughs> every time I roll over in bed in the morning to look at her I've got John Carpenter and Kurt Russell over her shoulder um, yeah I mean they, they were a great like partnership I think and um, And I think the thing... Big Trouble in Little China is one of the funniest films Mm -hmm. I think ever made. But uh, I never really got on board with Escape from New York. Yeah. And the thing is kind of like... This is what happens when they do serious, sort of gritty, uh, bleak science fiction.
2: Yeah.
0: Something else I noticed when I was um, uh, doing my little bit of research on you, Mike, was I went, oh, it's written for... Marvel Comics. So I went, oh, yep. what's that? And then, of course, I looked up to see what it was. So I went, <laughs> I've got that. I've got <laughs> that. And it is the,
2: yeah, uh, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider Man Annual number one. Which my name might be misspelled on. That might be the, I still have one where my name is spelled without the C. Yeah, this is it. Drucker. Drucker. It's spelled right inside the comic, but on the outside, which is great when it's like your first comic with your name on it. Great that it's misspelled. <laughs> How did that come about? It's just a mistake. Like they just they just made a mistake because it's spelled right inside. The job. The guy's came
1: up with I was like, I don't know. Something
2: he just. He was doing something else the same time. <laughs> I took you so literally. I was like, I don't know. The, the copy editor was an
1: end. Imagine, imagine <laughs> if that's all we wanted to ask you about. It says here you wrote for uh, Spider-Man, but they got your name wrong. Who's uh, this? It says, says Drinker. Uh, all right. <laughs> thanks very much. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> see you. See you later. <laughs> um,
2: um, I, I um, uh, for a couple of award shows uh, with, uh, I. I'm friends with Pat Oswalt, and we've and I've written for a couple of award shows that he's hosted. And another writer on it's this guy, Jerry Duggan, who writes a lot of things for Marvel. And they were looking for someone to fill in a couple, like, short comics, and Jerry recommended me, and they were nice enough to take me.
0: And so were you, do you come from the perspective of being a comic book fan? Is that yeah, is that your inroad to it?
2: Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not as bad. Like, I have not kept up as well as I used to. Like, in college... And right after college, I was very good at it, and then I fell off. But, yeah, no, it's coming from the place of a fan.
0: I was impressed as well that for someone who it's their first job at Marvel, that it's drawn by uh, Chris Bacallo. I know! That's a a big deal, Nick, because he's one of the big... He's like, you've got a big guy to do your first Marvel comic.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, When they told me it was him, I was like, I don't think... That's not the name I think it is. Like, I had to re-Google him just because I was like, I think that's a famous artist.
1: <laughs> so do you know that he's, right, that, he's, that he's drawing going in, or is that something that happens once you've delivered your, your script?
2: I'm sure if you're, like, more, like, if you're more established, that's a little more like this guy's partnering with you. Uh, I turned in my script, and then they told me who the artist was.
1: So, I don't... uh, Nat used to work in a uh, comic book shop, uh, and I grew up watching comics, but um, uh, I was addicted to comics, and um, they kept putting stuff aside for me that I hadn't agreed to, and then I couldn't afford it. uh, (laughs) Eventually, it was like being bullied by the mafia, and I had to go cold turkey and just never... I was 16, and I was confused and scared, and I had to never go into a comic book shop ever again. Um, So, I got up to about Spawn issue... 126. And then I don't know what happened after that. <laughs> I imagine Todd McFarlane tried to sell more toys, but that's yeah. all I know. Right. Yeah. So, When it comes to writing a script for a comic book, yeah. how do you go about doing that?
2: Um, well, uh, do you mean like the actual technical way or like, how do I make yeah, sure like, something's not like breaking canon or something? Well,
1: um, do the technical stuff first.
2: Technical stuff. It's, uh, it's pretty loose. I basically asked Jerry Duggan for one of his scripts and kind of followed the format of it. But really it's almost like you're describing a drawing, you're describing the text in it, you're describing a drawing, but like at the top of the page, you're like broken up into six panels or like two big panels or one full page or whatever. And you describe it and yeah, you do the word bubbles, the thought bubbles, what have you, you have to be in as detailed as possible. Like you can't just be like Spider-Man swings. Um, Otherwise, the artist will come and be like, hey, what do you, what do
1: you mean? So you've got to take the interpretation out of it.
2: Yes, you really do. Like, so, and the artist will come back to you at times and be like, hey, I know you said this, but is there a way we could do this? Or like, um, you know, I wrote like a short Deadpool comic once, and the artist was like, I know what you're trying to write, but the character is not the same size as the thing that you think it is. And I was like, okay, so we'll change it to this. So it is it is collaborative. It's not just like, here's what you draw and they go away. Um, there's also, like, those words won't fit. Is there a different way to do this? Or do you want to break these panels up? Um, yeah, uh, but it's really just des- description, te- uh, you know, dialogue, description, dialogue, but as description-heavy as you can be.
1: And then in terms of, like, not breaking canon, mm-hmm. how, uh, I guess would if you were coming on to do a short run or a comic here and there, it would be to make the story as self-contained as possible, right?
2: Yeah, um, they're pretty good about... Uh, At least the editor I worked with was pretty good about, um, giving me the editors, plural, uh, giving me feedback and kind of like, Hey, this character, like I had a, in the Spider-Man comic, I had them beating up a different villain. I forget who there's a scene where a bunch of kids are beating up like a D list villain and I had it as a different villain. What? Yeah. And it was someone else before I, it was, I think maybe the shocker before that it was someone that they were like, actually, this guy's doing something now. You know, so, like, they'll they'll sort of catch you and stuff, and you're giving them an, a plot outline before you write the script. Like, I gave them sort of like a like a beat-by-beat beat what I was thinking kind of description, because it was a shorter comic. So there, too, they could have been like, hey, don't do this, or Spider-Man isn't here right now, or or that. They're good at catching you. They do encourage you, obviously, to keep up. Yeah. Um, I, well, I notice
0: that, because you've even got mentions of, like, characters like Jean de Wolfe, and you think, yeah. oh, this feels a bit inside baseball it doesn't feel very uh, someone's come in and they've been hired from something else yeah no no quite obscure characters and things you go oh which is often like um often that always feels like it's trying it's talking to the audience a bit it's a bit yeah. i
1: know don't worry yeah. about
2: it that, but, there's definitely an element of that too of trying to prove myself yeah <laughs> i'll just throw a couple of names just to uh yeah. just to let them know who i am <laughs> <laughs> dealing with <laughs> i mean kind of yeah you're not wrong <laughs> of course, I understand. Of course that's what you did do. Um,
0: oh, it looks like we're quite near the end of our show or near our
1: chat. Oh. Um OK. Uh, well, we've got a game to play with you, Mike. Um, but before we play the game, is have you got any uh, last thoughts on uh, anything that you've said over the last 15 minutes? <laughs>
2: I, uh, I think the thing is a great movie. You guys should bring it up as much as you want on the show. It's your show, Thank so you. I say keep talking about the thing uh, and buy my book, Silent Hill Two from Boss Fight Books.
1: Okay, fine. That's that's good. We might use that as a soundbite to uh, so get people off our backs. It's a bit about the thing, not the bit about your book. It's <laughs> um. <laughs> um, out now. It's out now.
2: Available. Now. Oh, oh, now it's out now. <laughs> Thank, Thank
0: you. you. Um, I've done a terrible job at promoting um, Silent Hill 2. I do imagine that the people that would listen to this show have probably already got it. If If not, they're already dialing it up and and incredibly excited.
1: If you can't, um, for the listeners at home, if you you don't know what Silent Hill is, it's very much uh, like uh, Monkey Island meets Alien, I (laughs) Um, So I'm going to hand you, uh, Mike, I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel now. He's going to right. take over and we're going to play uh, the world-famous game, the internationally-famous game, especially in Malta, where we are 117th on the chart. 117 in Malta? We've gone down so far now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we were 43. 43 last week. What the fuck's going on? Um, I haven't sworn this week. That's the first time I've sworn. Um, oh, wow. What a cunt. So let's... Uh, t- so without further ado, let's uh, play the game Better or Worse.
0: OK, Mike, this is a game Better or Worse and you have to say whether the next person on the list is better or worse than the person before based Great. entirely on my opinions to score points. Great. Great. Starting with Bill Murray. <laughs> Is
2: Billy D. Williams better or worse than Bill Murray? Oh, that's a tough question. That's a what tough, that? that's a tough, complicated question. I'm going to say I say I, I'm going to say Bill Murray, um, but it is, but it's hard. I'm going to say Bill okay. Murray, but it's hard. Correct. Okay. Is Billy Bob Thornton better or worse than Billy D. Williams? Uh, a couple of years ago, I would have said better, but now I'm going to say worse. worse. I'm going to say right. Billy Bob Thornton's worse. Billy Crystal better or worse than Billy Bob Thornton? Better. Uh, You know what, I find Billy Crystal annoying But I think as a quality overall, I'm going to say better Better, it's also my opinion Yeah, Yeah, he's better I think he's a
1: good comedian, I just
2: find him annoying
1: It's all right. you can say that you hate him, it's fine (laughs) Uh, We'll use that as the clip that goes out Oh Um. no
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'll never write for the 1993 Oscars (laughs) (laughs) Is that better or worse than Billy Crystal? Worse Worse, worse, worse Billy Conley
0: better or worse than Billy Zane? Better. Better, yeah. Better. Billy Piper, better or worse than Billy Conley.
2: I don't know who Billy Piper is. Worse. Fair enough. Worse. worse. Billy <laughs>
0: Holiday. Better or worse than Billy Piper? Better. I'm gonna say better. Better. Billy Joel, better or worse than Billy Holiday? Better.
2: I'm gonna say worse. worse. I'm gonna... Worse. Say worse. Yeah,
0: I'm sure gonna say was. worse. Uh, <laughs> Billy Idol better or worse than Billy Joel?
2: better. <laughs> I feel, I. That's a tough one because both are so. Uh, you know what? I, I enjoy Billy Idol more. I'm gonna say better. Better. Billy Idol I think might be technically better, but in terms of my enjoyment, I'm gonna go Idol. Don't overthink it, Mike. I, I, I can't it? help it. Billy <laughs> Idol. <Eilish. laughs> <laughs> can't uh, help it. Billy Idol.
0: Who's better or worse? Billy Eilish, better or worse than Billy Idol? I think. She's- I'm going to say better. I'm going to say better. I'm going to say better. Worse, but only because I don't really know who she is. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fair. Fair. I've heard the name. i heard the name. It's
1: not... Not... Nine! Right. Wait. Okay. Mike Drucker, you've got nine. 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 Uh... <laughs> That's if we're counting Billy Piper which I think we are which is, which is a great score which means that you're not as good as Jen Brimster Thomas Coombs Jason Manford Joe Scaldone with 10 but you are as good as David Baddiel Ken Cheng Harry Hill and Luke Morley with 9 and you're better than Matt Crosby Susie Dent Charles Eston, Eddie Hearn David Hetworth Jason Isaacs and Simon West John Deven Magical Bones, Samantha Morton Mac, Matt Okine Miranda Raisin Griffith Jones Chris Stark Stu Whiffen with 8 Sir, <laughs> James <laughs> King Ludie Lynn Henry Normal Janet Varney Johnny Vegas with 7 Gary Delaney now, Frizzell, uh, Frank Harper with six, and poor old Dave McLean with five. Uh, so, yeah, you scored a very high and respectable nine. Yeah. Um. Well done. Thank you so much for being a guest on our show. It was lovely to to you. Don't go anywhere. We need a photo. Uh, So um, (laughs) it's goodbye from me. uh, It's goodbye from that. Uh, Welcome to the Clubhouse, Mike. And for all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, Look after yourselves. Wear a mask. Wash your hands. I've been Seth Meyer. We love you. Uh, Goodbye. (laughs)